Chapter Forty Two of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Forty Two. I found them winding of Marcello's corpse, and there was such a solemn melody twixt doleful songs, tears, and sad elegies, such as old grand dames watching by the dead are wont to outwear the night with. Old Play The mode of entering the great tower of Coningsburg Castle is very peculiar, and partakes of the rude simplicity of the early times in which it was erected. A flight of steps, so deep and narrow as to be almost precipitous, leads up to a low portal in the south side of the tower, by which the adventurous antiquary may still, or at least could a few years since, gain access to a small stair within the thickness of the main wall of the tower, which leads up to the third story of the building the two lower being dungeons or vaults, which neither receive air nor light, save by a square hole in the third story, with which they seem to have communicated by a ladder. The access to the upper apartments in the tower, which consist in all of four stories, is given by stairs which are carried up through the external buttresses. By this difficult and complicated entrance, the good King Richard, followed by his faithful Ivanhoe, was ushered into the round apartment which occupies the whole of the third story from the ground. Wilfred, by the difficulties of the ascent, gained time to muffle his face in his mantle, as it had been held expedient that he should not present himself to his father until the king should give him the signal. There were assembled in this apartment, around a large oaken table, about a dozen of the most distinguished representatives of the Saxon families in the adjacent counties. They were all old, or at least elderly men. For the younger race, to the great displeasure of the seniors, had, like Ivanhoe, broken down many of the barriers which separated for half a century the Norman victors from the vanquished Saxons. The downcast and sorrowful looks of these venerable men, their silence and their mournful posture, formed a strong contrast to the levity of the revellers on the outside of the castle. Their grey locks and long full beards, together with their antique tunics and loose black mantles, suited well with the singular and rude apartment in which they were seated, and gave the appearance of a band of ancient worshippers of Woden, recalled to life to mourn over the decay of their national glory. Cedric, seated in equal rank among his countrymen, seemed yet, by common consent, to act as chief of the assembly. Upon the entrance of Richard, only known to him as the valorous knight of the Fetterlock, he arose gravely, and gave him welcome by the ordinary salutation, Weiss Hale, raising at the same time a goblet to his head. The king, no stranger to the customs of his English subjects, returned the greeting with the appropriate words, drink hail, and partook of a cup which was handed to him by the sewer. The same courtesy was offered to Ivanhoe, who pledged his father in silence, supplying the usual speech by an inclination of his head, lest his voice should have been recognized. When this introductory ceremony was performed, Cedric arose, and extending his hand to Richard, conducted him into a small and very rude chapel, which was excavated, as it were, out of one of the external buttresses. As there was no opening, saving a little narrow loophole, the place would have been nearly quite dark but for two flambeaux or torches, which showed, by a red and smoky light, the arched roof and naked walls, the rude altar of stone, and the crucifix of the same material. Before this altar was placed a bier, and on each side of the bier kneeled three priests, who told their beads and muttered their prayers with the greatest signs of external devotion. 
For this service a splendid soul-scat was paid to the convent of St. Edmund's by the mother of the deceased. And, that it might be fully deserved, the whole brethren, saving the lame sacristan, had transferred themselves to Coningsburg, where, while six of their number were constantly on guard in the performance of divine rites by the beer of Athelstane, the others failed not to take their share of the refreshments and amusements which went on at the castle. In maintaining this pious watch and ward, the good monks were particularly careful not to interrupt their hymns for an instant, lest Zernabach, the ancient Saxon Apollyon, should lay his clutches on the departed Athelstane. Nor were they any less careful to prevent any unhallowed layman from touching the pall, which, having been that used at the funeral of St. Edmund, was liable to be desecrated if handled by the profane. If, in truth, these attentions could be of any use to the deceased, he had some right to expect them at the hands of the brethren of St. Edmund's, since, besides a hundred mancuses of gold paid down as the sole ransom, the mother of Athelstane had announced her intention of endowing that foundation with the better part of the lands of the deceased, in order to maintain perpetual prayers for his soul and that of her departed husband. Richard and Wilfred followed the Saxon Cedric into the apartment of death, where, as their guide pointed with solemn air to the untimely bier of Athelstane, they followed his example in devoutly crossing themselves, and muttering a brief prayer for the weal of the departed soul. This act of pious charity performed, Cedric again motioned them to follow him, gliding over the stone floor with a noiseless tread, and, after ascending a few steps, opened with great caution the door of a small oratory, which adjoined to the chapel. It was about eight feet square, hollowed, like the chapel itself, out of the thickness of the wall, and the loophole which enlightened it, being to the west, and widening considerably as it sloped inward, a beam of the setting sun found its way into its dark recess, and showed a female of a dignified mien, and whose countenance retained the marked remains of majestic beauty. Her long morning robes and her flowing wimple of black cypress enhanced the whiteness of her skin, and the beauty of her light-colored and flowing tresses, which time had neither thinned nor mingled with silver." Her countenance expressed the deepest sorrow that is consistent with resignation. On the stone table before her stood a crucifix of ivory, beside which was laid a missal, having its pages richly illuminated, and its boards adorned with clasps of gold and bosses of the same precious metal. "'Noble Edith,' said Cedric, after having stood a moment silent, as if to give Richard and Wilfred time to look upon the lady of the mansion, "'these are worthy strangers, come to take a part in thy sorrows.' and this, in especial, is the valiant knight who fought so bravely for the deliverance of him for whom we this day mourn. His bravery has my thanks, returned the lady, although it be the will of heaven that it should be displayed in vain. I thank, too, his courtesy and that of his companion, which hath brought them hither to behold the widow of Adeling, the mother of Athelstane, in her deep hour of sorrow and lamentation. To your care, kind kinsman, I entrust them, satisfied that they will want no hospitality which these sad walls can yet afford. The guests bowed deeply to the mourning parent, and withdrew from their hospitable guide. Another winding stair conducted them to an apartment of the same size with that which they had first entered, occupying indeed the story immediately above. From this room, ere yet the door was opened, proceeded a low and melancholy strain of vocal music. When they entered, they found themselves in the presence of about twenty matrons and maidens of distinguished Saxon lineage. Four maidens, Rowena leading the choir, raised a hymn for the soul of the deceased, of which we have only been able to decipher two or three stanzas. 
Dust into dust, to this all must, the tenant hath resigned, the faded form to waste and worm, corruption claims her kind. Through paths unknown thy soul hath flown, to seek the realms of woe, where fiery pain shall purge the stain of actions done below. In that sad place, by Mary's grace, brief may thy dwelling be, till prayers and alms and holy psalms shall set the captive free. While this dirge was sung, in a low and melancholy tone, by the female choristers, the others were divided into two bands, of which one was engaged in bedecking, with such embroidery as their skill and taste could compass, a large silken pall, destined to cover the beer of Athelstane, while the others busied themselves in selecting, from baskets of flowers placed before them, garlands which they intended for the same mournful purpose. The behavior of the maidens was decorous, if not marked with deep affliction, but now and then a whisper or a smile called forth the rebuke of the severer matrons, and here and there might be seen a damsel, more interested in endeavoring to find out how her mourning robe became her, than in the dismal ceremony for which they were preparing. Neither was this propensity, if we must needs confess the truth, at all diminished by the appearance of two strange knights, which occasioned some looking up, peeping, and whispering. Rowena alone, too proud to be vain, paid her greeting to her deliverer with a graceful courtesy. Her demeanor was serious but not dejected, and it may be doubted whether thoughts of Ivanhoe and of the uncertainty of his fate did not claim as great a share in her gravity as the death of her kinsman. To Cedric, however, who, as we have observed, was not remarkably clear-sighted on such occasions, the sorrow of his ward seemed so much deeper than any of the other maidens, that he deemed it proper to whisper the explanation. She was the affianced bride of the noble Athelstane. It may be doubted whether this communication went a far way to increase Wilfred's disposition to sympathize with the mourners of Coningsburg. Having thus formally introduced the guests to the different chambers in which the obesquies of Athelstane were celebrated under different forms, Cedric conducted them into a small room, destined, as he informed them, for the exclusive accommodation of honorable guests, whose more slight connection with the deceased might render them unwilling to join those who were immediately affected by the unhappy event. He assured them of every accommodation, and was about to withdraw, when the black knight took his hand. I crave to remind you, noble Thane, he said, that when we last parted you promised, for the service I had the fortune to render you, to grant me a boon. It is granted ere named, noble knight, said Cedric, yet, at this sad moment, of that also, said the king, I have bethought me, but my time is brief, neither does it seem to me unfit, that, when closing the grave on the noble Athelstane, we should deposit therein certain prejudices and hasty opinions. Sir Knight of the Fetterlock, said Cedric, colouring, and interrupting the king in his turn, I trust your boon regards yourself and no other, for in that which concerns the honour of my house it is scarce fitting that a stranger should mingle. "'Nor do I wish to mingle,' said the king mildly, "'unless in so far as you will admit me to have an interest. "'As yet you have known me but as the black knight of the Fetterlock. "'Know me now as Richard Plantagenet.' "'Richard of Anjou!' exclaimed Cedric, "'stepping backward with the utmost astonishment. "'No, noble Cedric, Richard of England, "'whose deepest interest, whose deepest wish, "'is to see her sons united with each other. "'And how now, worthy Thane! "'Hast thou no knee for thy prince?' To Norman blood, said Cedric, it hath never bended. Reserve thine homage, then, said the monarch, until I shall prove my right to it by equal protection of Normans and English. 
Prince, answered Cedric, I have ever done justice to thy bravery and thy worth, nor am I ignorant of thy claim to the crown through thy descendant from Matilda, niece to Edgar Atheling, and daughter to Malcolm of Scotland. But Matilda, though of the royal Saxon blood, was not the heir to the monarchy. I will not dispute my title with thee, noble Thane, said Richard calmly, but I will bid thee look around thee, and see where thou wilt find another to be put into the scale against it. And hast thou wandered hither, prince, to tell me so? said Cedric, to upbraid me with the ruin of my race, ere the grave has closed over the last scion of Saxon royalty? His countenance darkened as he spoke. It was boldly, it was rashly done. Not so, by the holy rood, replied the king. It was done in the frank confidence which one brave man may repose in another without a shadow of danger. Thou sayest well, Sir King, for king I own thou art, and wilt be, despite of my feeble opposition. I dare not take the only mode to prevent it, though thou hast placed the strong temptation within my reach. And now to my boon, said the king, which I ask not with one jot the less confidence that thou hast refused to acknowledge my lawful sovereignty. I require of thee, as a man of thy word, on pain of being held faithless, mansworn, and nittering, to forgive and receive to thy paternal affection the good knight, Wilfred of Ivanhoe. In this reconciliation thou wilt own I have an interest, the happiness of my friend, and the quelling of dissension among my faithful people. And this is Wilfred, said Cedric, pointing to his son. My father, my father, said Ivanhoe, prostrating himself at Cedric's feet, grant me thy forgiveness. Thou hast it, my son, said Cedric, raising him up. The son of Herward knows how to keep his word, even when it has been passed to a Norman. But let me see thee use the dress and costume of thy English ancestry. No short cloaks, no gay bonnets, no fantastic plumage in my decent household. He that would be the son of Cedric must show himself of English ancestry. Thou art about to speak, he added sternly, and I guess the topic. The Lady Rowena must complete two years' mourning, as for a betrothed husband. All our Saxon ancestors would disown us, were we to treat of a new union for her, ere the grave of him who she should have wedded, him so much the most worthy of her hand by birth and ancestry, is yet closed. The ghost of Athelstane himself would burst his bloody cerements, and stand before us to forbid such dishonor to his memory. It seemed as if Cedric's words had raised a scepter, for scarce had he uttered them ere the door flew open, and Athelstane, arrayed in the garments of the grave, stood before them, pale, haggard, and like something arisen from the dead. The effect of this apparition on the persons present was utterly appalling. Cedric started back as far as the wall of the apartment would permit, and, leaning against it as one unable to support himself, gazed on the figure of his friend with eyes that seemed fixed, and a mouth which he appeared incapable of shutting. Ivanhoe crossed himself, repeating prayers in Saxon, Latin, or Norman French, as they occurred to his memory, while Richard alternately said Benedicte, and swore, Mort de ma vie. In the meantime a horrible noise was heard below stairs, some crying, Secure the treacherous monks! Others, Down with them into the dungeon! Others, Pitch them from the highest battlements! In the name of God, said Cedric, addressing what seemed the spectre of his departed friend, if thou art mortal, speak, if a departed spirit, say for what purpose thou dost revisit us, or if I can do aught that can set thy spirit at repose. Living or dead, noble Athelstane, speak to Cedric. I will, said the spectre, very composedly, when I have collected breath, and when you give me time, 
Alive, saidst thou? I am as much alive as he can be who has fed on bread and water for three days, which seem three ages. Yes, bread and water, Father Cedric. By heaven and all saints in it, better food hath not passed my wazen for three lifelong days, and by God's providence it is that I am now here to tell it. Why, noble Athelstane, said the black knight, I myself saw you struck down by the fierce Templar towards the end of the storm at Torquilstone, and as I thought, and Wamba reported, your skull was cloven through the teeth. You thought amiss, sir knight, said Athelstane, and Wamba lied. My teeth are in good order, and that my supper shall presently find. No thanks to the Templar, though, whose sword turned in his hand, so that the blade struck me flatlings, being averted by the handle of the good mace with which I warded the blow. Had my steel cap been on, I had not valued it a rush, and had dealt him such a counter-buff as would have spoilt his retreat. But, as it was, down I went, stunned indeed, but unwounded. Others, of both sides, were beaten down and slaughtered above me, so that I never recovered my senses until I found myself in a coffin, an open one by good luck, placed before the altar of the church of St. Edmund's. I sneezed repeatedly, groaned, awakened and would have arisen, when the sacristan and abbot, full of terror, came running at the noise, surprised doubtless, and no way pleased to find the man alive, whose heirs they had proposed themselves to be. I asked for wine. They gave me some, but it must have been highly medicated, for I slept yet more deeply than before, and awakened not for many hours. I found my arms swathed down, my feet tied so fast that mine ankles ache at the very remembrance. The place was utterly dark the oubliette, as I suppose, of their accursed convent, and from the close, stifled, damp smell, I conceive it is also used for a place of sepulture. I had strange thoughts of what had befallen me, when the door of my dungeon creaked, and two villain monks entered. They would have persuaded me I was in purgatory, but I knew too well the pursy, short-breathed voice of the father abbot. St. Jeremy! How different from that tone with which he used to ask me for another slice of the haunch! The dog has feasted with me from Christmas to Twelfth Night. Have patience, noble Athelstane, said the king. Take breath, tell your story at leisure. Beshrew me, but such a tale is as worth well listening to as a romance. I but, by the root of Bromaholm, there was no romance in the matter, said Athelstane. A barley loaf and a pitcher of water that they gave me, the niggardly traitors, whom my father and I myself had enriched, when their best resources were the flitches of bacon and measures of corn, out of which they wheedled poor serfs and bondsmen in exchange for their prayers, the nest of foul ungrateful vipers, barley bread and ditch-water to such a patron as I had been. I will smoke them out of their nest, though I be excommunicated. But in the name of Our Lady, noble Athelstane, said Cedric, grasping the hand of his friend, how didst thou escape this imminent danger? Did their hearts relent? Did their hearts relent, echoed Athelstane. Do rocks melt with the sun? I should have been there still, had not some stir in the convent, which I find was their procession hitherward to eat my funeral feast, when they well knew how and where I had been buried alive, summoned the swarm out of their hive. I heard them droning out their death psalms, little judging they were sung in respect for my soul by those who were thus famishing my body. They went, however, and I waited long for food, no wonder, the gouty sacristan was even too busy with his own provender to mind mine. At length down he came, with an unstable step and a strong flavor of wine and spices about his person. Good cheer had opened his heart, for he left me a nook of pasty and a flask of wine instead of my former fare. 
I ate, drank, and was invigorated. When, to add to my good luck, the sacristan, too toddy to discharge his duty of turnkey fitly, locked the door beside the staple, so that it fell ajar. The light, the food, the wine, set my invention to work. The staple to which my chains were fixed was more rusted than I or the villain abbot had supposed. Even iron could not remain without consuming in the damps of that infernal dungeon. "'Take breath, noble Athelstane,' said Richard, "'and partake of some refreshment ere you proceed with a tale so dreadful.' "'Partake,' quoth Athelstane, "'I have been partaking five times to-day, "'and yet a morsel of that savoury ham were not altogether foreign to the matter.' and I pray you, fair sir, to do me reason in a cup of wine. The guests, though still agape with astonishment, pledged their resuscitated landlord, who thus proceeded in his story. He had indeed now many more auditors than those to whom it was commenced, for Edith, having given certain necessary orders for arranging matters within the castle, had followed the dead alive up to the stranger's apartment, attended by as many of the guests, male and female, as could squeeze into the small room, while others, crowding the staircase, caught up an erroneous edition of the story, and transmitted it still more inaccurately to those beneath, who again sent it forth to the vulgar without, in a fashion totally irreconcilable to the real fact. Athelstane, however, went on as follows, with the history of his escape. Finding myself freed from the staple, I dragged myself upstairs as well as a man loaded with shackles and emaciated with fasting might, and after much groping about, I was at length directed, by the sound of a jolly roundelay, to the apartment where the worthy sacristan, and it so please ye, was holding a devil's mass with the huge beetle-browed, broad-shouldered brother of the grey frock and cowl, who looked much more like a thief than a clergyman. I bust in upon them, and the fashion of my grave-clothes, as well as the clanking of my chains, made me more resemble an inhabitant of the other world than of this. Both stood aghast, but when I knocked down the sacristan with my fist, the other fellow, his pot companion, fetched a blow at me with a huge quarter-staff. "'This must be our friar Tuck for a count's ransom,' said Richard, looking at Ivanhoe. "'He may be the devil, and he will,' said Athelstane. Fortunately he missed the aim, and on my approaching to grapple with him, took to his heels and ran for it. I failed not to set my own heels at liberty by means of the fetter-key, which hung amongst others at the sexton's belt.' and I had thoughts of beating out the knave's brains with a bunch of keys, but gratitude for the nook of pasty and the flask of wine which the rascal had imparted to my captivity came over my heart. So, with a brace of hearty kicks, I left him on the floor, couched some baked meat and a leathern bottle of wine, with which the two venerable brethren had been regaling, went to the stable and found in a private stall mine own best palfrey, which, doubtless, had been set apart for the Holy Father Abbot's particular use." Hither I came with all the speed the beast could compass, man and mother's son flying before me wherever I came, taking me for a spectre, the more especially as, to prevent my being recognized, I drew the corpse-hood over my face. I had not gained admittance into my own castle, had I not been supposed to be the attendant of a juggler who is making the people in the castle-yard very merry, considering they are assembled to celebrate their lord's funeral." I say the sewer thought I was dressed to bear a part in the tregator's mummery, and so I got admission, and did but disclose myself to my mother, and eat a hasty morsel, ere I came in quest of you, my noble friend. And you have found me, said Cedric, ready to resume our brave projects of honour and liberty. I tell thee, never will dawn a morrow so auspicious as the next, 
for the deliverance of the noble Saxon race. Talk not to me of delivering any one, said Athelstane. It is well I am delivered myself. I am more intent on punishing that villain abbot. He shall hang at the top of this castle of Koningsberg in his cope and stole, and if the stairs be too straight to admit his fat carcass, I will have him craned up from without. But, my son, said Edith, consider his sacred office. Consider my three days fast, replied Athelstane. I will have their blood every one of them. Front de Boeuf was burned alive for a less matter, for he kept a good table for his prisoners, only put too much garlic in his last dish of pottage. But these hypocritical ungrateful slaves, so often the self-invited flatterers at my board, who gave me neither pottage nor garlic, more or less, they die by the soul of Hengist. But the Pope, my noble friend, said Cedric. But the devil, my noble friend, answered Athelstane. They die, and no more of them. Were they the best monks upon earth, the world would go on without them. For shame, noble Athelstane, said Cedric. Forget such wretches in the career of glory which lies open before thee. Tell this Norman prince, Richard of Anjou, that, lion-hearted as he is, he shall not hold undisputed the throne of Alfred, while a male descendant of the Holy Confessor lives to dispute it. How, said Athelstane, is this the noble King Richard? It is Richard Plantagenet himself, said Cedric, yet I need not remind thee that, coming hither a guest of free will, he may neither be injured nor detained prisoner. Thou well knowest thy duty to him as his host. Ay, by my faith, said Athelstane, and my duty as a subject besides, for I here tender him my allegiance, heart, and hand. My son, said Edith, think on thy royal rights. Think on the freedom of England, degenerate prince, said Cedric. Mother and friend, said Athelstane, a truce to your upbraidings. Bread and water and a dungeon are marvellous mortifiers of ambition, and I rise from the tomb a wiser man than I descended into it. One half of those vain follies were puffed into mine ear by that perfidious abbot Wolfram, and you may now judge if he is a counsellor to be trusted. Since these plots were set in agitation, I have had nothing but hurried journeys, indigestions, blows and bruises, imprisonments and starvation. Besides that, they can only end in the murder of some thousands of quiet folk. I tell you, I will be king in my own domains and nowhere else, and my first act of dominion shall be to hang the abbot. And my ward Rowena, said Cedric, I trust you intend not to desert her? Father Cedric, said Athelstane, be reasonable. The Lady Rowena cares not for me. She loves the little finger of my kinsman Wilfred's glove better than my whole person. There she stands to avouch it. Nay, blush not, kinswoman. There is no shame in loving a courtly knight better than a country Franklin. And do not laugh neither, Rowena, for grave clothes and a thin visage are, God knows, no matter of merriment. Nay, and thou wilt needs laugh, I will find thee a better jest. Give me thy hand, or rather lend it me, for I but ask it in the way of friendship. Here, cousin Wilfred of Ivanhoe, in thy favour I renounce and abjure. Hey, by St. Dunstan, our cousin Wilfred hath vanished. Yet, unless my eyes are still dazzled with the fasting I have undergone, I saw him stand here but even now. All now looked around and inquired for Ivanhoe, but he had vanished. It was at length discovered that a Jew had been to seek him, and that, after very brief conference, he had called for girth and his armor, and had left the castle. Fair cousin, said Athelstane to Rowena, could I think that this sudden disappearance of Ivanhoe was occasioned by other than the weightiest reason, I would myself resume. 
but he had no sooner let go of her hand on first observing that Ivanhoe had disappeared, than Rowena, who had found her situation extremely embarrassing, had taken the first opportunity to escape from the apartment. Certainly, quoth Athelstane, women are the least to be trusted of all animals, monks and abbots excepted. I am an infidel if I expected not thanks from her, and perhaps a kiss to boot. These cursed grave-clothes have surely a spell on them, every one flies from me. To you I turn, noble King Richard, with the vows of allegiance, which, as a liege subject, but King Richard was gone also, and no one knew whither. At length it was learned that he had hastened to the courtyard, summoned to his presence the Jew who had spoken with Ivanhoe, and after a moment's speech with him, had called vehemently to horse, thrown himself upon a steed, compelled the Jew to mount another, and set off at a rate which, according to Wamba, rendered the old Jew's neck not worth a penny's purchase. "'By my halidome,' said Athelstane, "'it is certain that Zernebach hath possessed himself of my castle in my absence. I return in my grave clothes, a pledge restored from the very sepulchre, and every one I speak to vanishes as soon as they hear my voice. But it skills not talking of it. Come, my friends, such of you as are left, follow me to the banqueting-hall, lest any more of us disappear. It is, I trust, as yet tolerably furnished, as becomes the obesquies of an ancient Saxon noble. And should we tarry any longer, who knows but the devil may fly off with the supper?' End of chapter 42